Thanks to Manifold for sponsoring this week's episode of Does Not Compute. You know as well as I do that managed cloud services can save developers time and effort. It wouldn't make sense to build your own logging platform, CMS, or authentication service when a managed tool or API can help solve the problem for you. But how do you find the right services to integrate? How do you learn to stitch them together? And how do you manage access and credentials between multiple projects and teams? Managing those details alone can be a full-time job. Manifold makes your life easier. It provides a single workflow to organize your services, connect the integrations together, and share them with your team. You can discover the best services for your projects in the Manifold Marketplace, or bring your own custom integrations and manage them all under one dashboard. There are services covering authentication, messaging, monitoring, content management, and more. Manifold will keep you on the cutting edge so you can focus on building your project rather than focusing on the problems that have already been solved. And once you have the services you need, you can deliver your configuration to any environment and deploy on any cloud. Manifold is completely free to use, but if you head over to manifold.co slash DNC, you'll get a coupon code for $10, which you can use to try out any service on the Manifold marketplace. I'm getting pretty hungry. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be recording when your uh, blood sugar's low. Maybe. We hit that deli up after this. That's what's going to happen. What are you getting? I have not decided yet. The people need to know. Sometimes, so I really like the Turkey Tom from Jimmy John's. Usually get that wherever I go, which is a turkey uh, sub with hot peppers and some provolone cheese. And uh, it's either that or sometimes I get like a pastrami sandwich. It's pretty good. Like a Reuben? Uh, nope. Although I don't mind. I mean, there's no sauerkraut on, on the sandwich I get, but I don't mind a Reuben. They're not bad. They're making me hungry now. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting pretty hungry. Damn it. Uh, what have I been doing this last week? It feels like we haven't talked in forever. It's a good question. It's been a, it's been a very fast week. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I can't believe it's already Thursday here. We've just been, I've just been nonstop. It feels, yeah, especially because I have two weeks and a couple of days before... I move. So it feels like the days are going so much quicker. I've been packing stuff. So my desk is a lot. I packed up all my PC gear and I packed up my speakers. So I ended up getting a HomePod on Black Friday. So I've been using that, but I don't have speakers on my desk anymore. So my desk is more barren than usual. And it's kind of nice, but it's minimalist. Minimalist. It's like, it's like front of the show, Greg's desk is his, his desk is pristine. He showed me some pictures of it. So I guess that's what I'm aspiring for. I don't trust people whose desks are clean. It's pristine. I'm telling you, or at least maybe he cleaned it. Maybe he cleaned it for the pictures he sent me. But when he sent me those pictures, I was like, "Hey, that could be." Are you in IKEA right now? Are you at IKEA? <laughs> well, I mean, of course you clean your desk for mm-hmm. the picture, but in reality, I don't know how anyone gets any work done without a messy desk. It just doesn't seem kosher to me. Yeah, I like to have a clean desk. I tried to have a clean desk. Yeah, sure feels nice. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, the days are going by quickly because I'm packing. So I just got a couple of boxes full of moving blankets. And so we're, yeah, it's like, it's real. There's like boxes stacked everywhere in my apartment and things are blanketed up minus the working, the work, the things that we need to work and study and all that. And, uh, we're just hanging out waiting for the truck really. Awesome. So yes, the days have been going by faster. Definitely. And shorter too. It's also, it's, it's a little bit weird. So I was talking with friend of the show, um, Matt, yesterday two days ago we were talking because he's newly freelance uh and so he was talking about working remotely and we were talking about diablo 3 because we both just started playing it a little bit again and he was like oh so are are you remote and i was like yeah he's like telling me how it feels 
I think he's he's still adjusting. So so when you work in like a tra- traditional office, you're there, and when you're not there, you're not working. And so if you're freelancing from home, and you don't have an office that you go to. It does. There's not that clear separation, and so that's what he was kind of talking about. And I've been noticing like. I, I still like I've been working remotely for two years and I still struggle with that where there's not a clear separation of, okay, I'm not working now. Um, and so he was kind of talking to me about that. And I think also what kind of compounds that here is it's getting dark so fast. It's like four o'clock and the sun's down and four o'clock, you know, I still have an hour to work. So I'm like, Oh, I'm still working. It's, it's weird. And then when I'm done working is when everyone else is in full swing. So that's when all the chatter is happening. So it makes it, it feels even stranger. Like, okay, I'm leaving now, but you're all here. And, you're loud now in this morning when I was working, you weren't, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's definitely a struggle and it can be both directions, right? Like your, your work can blend into your home time and your home stuff can blend into your work time. So yeah, I find, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but I, I do have an office dedicated to working. Uh, and that has definitely helped having the physical separation. Is it just like a spare room in your house or do you go somewhere different to work? No, it's 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 downstairs. It's a separate room. Ah, uh, I gotcha. But it's uh it's supposed to be it's pretty big actually. It's way too big to be an office. It's like more of like a family hangout room, but mm-hmm. it was the only kind of extra room in the house that made sense for that. Sure. So um that's nice to have, but it's still like you don't have like a commute to like decompress or change shift gears or think about things, you know, there's no, there's still not physical separation. And like in my head, it'd be like, Oh, it'd be cool to get a kind of like a, like a rental space or a, you know, shared space or maker space or whatever. Right. You can do rental offices, mm-hmm. but then it's like, Oh, well, why, why would I commute? <laughs> yeah. Why would I, you know, force myself to get up and drive uh, every day, which is, you know, dangerous, especially when it's crappy weather. And like put yourself through all this hassle uh, just for that separation. It's like, I feel like it's easier to just train yourself to, to be diligent about that. Yeah. The training I think is the hard part. Just, just doing that, making it, I guess it's like any other habit, right? So one thing that really helps me is, is uh, having that, that, that separation where on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays at, Five o'clock, I leave to go to jujitsu. So I get in a car and I go somewhere, I work out and I come back. And then it's, you know, I've had a reset at that point. So I'm not working anymore when I get home. And it feels like I'm not working, if that makes sense. Right. Whereas other days where I might go from working to recording the show or I might go from working to having a meeting about something else, the, there was not like this hard reset. So, I, yeah, I don't. It, again, it's a little bit different here because it's snowing and I don't like walking in the snow. And they haven't plowed the sidewalks yet. So we just got dumped on got multiple inches of snow and they just haven't plowed the sidewalks. So walking anywhere, I either have to walk in the street, which I've done, or walk on the sidewalks, which you're sliding around all the place. You're, you know, you're even though I'm wearing boots, like I'm getting wet. It's just not great. But I think that's one thing that I might try doing after I move is at a certain point, five o'clock, okay, um, I'm done now. I'm going to go outside for a walk and have a reset, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because then you then you get the sort of time to turn your brain off or just, you know, make that mental transition. Yeah. I I don't know why I need that, but I really, I, w- I don't know. I, I, w- I guess I was just internalizing kind of what he was saying. The, the other part of what he was saying is that at work, you know, you've done a day's work when you've hit eight hours. Like, okay, I'm done working now. Like you may have gotten a lot done. You may have gotten nothing done, but the the number of hours that you were in a building makes you feel like 
I have my work my work's done now because I was there for those hours. <laughs> yeah, even if you just uh, you only know, did one or two hours of actual work, right? With all the you know meetings or you know whatever else you had going on, and you went out to your you went out to lunch with your coworkers to get the Chinese food again, and then everyone comes home like everyone comes back <laughs> and they're just no one's doing anything because you're all sleeping. We used to do that a lot, octopus. Yep, yep, it sounds familiar for sure. Eat a giant lunch. We don't eat breakfast and we eat a giant lunch and then not do anything. Um, but yeah, that's that's the other thing is like when I'm here. I don't. I don't really ever work for eight hours, but I feel like I get more. I get larger chunks done in bursts. So I have my morning burst and I have my afternoon burst, and I feel like between my morning and afternoon burst, there's this time I call it lunch. I just say, "Hey, everyone, I'm going to go get some food, or I'll be back in a bit." But that's where another reset happens, almost where I do go for a walk. I go outside to go get lunch. I go somewhere else and I come back. It's like a re-energizing phase, I think. And that's the other thing. Like in the mornings, if I go from waking up and and getting coffee straight into working there's like the slow ramp up if that makes sense like i slowly i'm still waking up or whatever but now i'm working whereas in the mornings if i go get coffee somewhere go for a walk or do something different somewhere else and then come back there's not as i'm 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 already like in the space like okay it's time to work now if that makes sense so there's not like this crossfade-ish crossfade style transition from me being a human that's not working to working, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting because like I've sort of adjusted to just waking up as late as possible and, and just doing that transition straight. Like you say, just make it, making coffee and just starting work. Uh, but yeah, it, is, it doesn't always make sense. Like sometimes it is nicer to wake up a little early, have time, eat a real breakfast, uh, you know, read some news or whatever, and then go to work like you would on a, you know, a normal job, except minus the commute. Yeah, it's interesting. So I used to listen to podcasts in the morning when I was because I usually like I'll I'll vacuum or sweep. And um, I usually try to go to sleep without any dishes in the sink. But if there are dishes in the sink, I'll do those. I'll make coffee. But what's interesting was I, I found when I was listening to a podcast, if I listen to a couple of short ones, they're fine, like the daily or something like that, it's fine. But if I listen to a longer one and I pause it and then I go sit down to try and work, I'm just not there yet. Mentally, I'm not there yet. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. I have to have these these hard transition periods like in the morning, at night, and and most of the time like in, in the midday where I need to like have a hard reset where I can hit the ground running quickly for a, a sprint, so to speak, and get anything uh, that's when I try to get anything useful done. But I usually try to do the bulk of the difficult stuff in the morning when I'm alone and the afternoon where I have meetings and calls and stuff like that, I'll try to do things of that nature. But yeah, it was just interesting. It was something I was thinking about this week, just observing myself and observing how I feel when I'm working and observing like what I've done to kind of trigger those feelings. And like, I feel like when I get into autopilot, I kind of shoot myself in the foot. Like I'll go make coffee, I'll sit down, but I'm not ready to be working yet, but I'm sitting down anyway. Like it's not, it's not, beneficial for me to be sitting down at that moment because I know I'm not going to be productive, but I'm there anyway because I feel obligated to be sitting in front of a computer at nine o'clock or whatever. Right, right. It's just, I don't know, interesting. What's funny is that no one knows that I'm not there. They're not even awake yet. It's four o'clock in the morning for them, but I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that's just something I've been thinking about this week. Well, when you are working, uh, what have you been working on? What have I been working on? I have been, that's a really good question. <laughs> Who knows? Scrolls through Git commit history. Uh, let me actually. I can go to the Trello. I can look at Trello really quick. Uh, oh yeah, this week has sucked. It's been a lot of bug fix, bug fixes. <laughs> so so for like the past six eight months, it's just been feature feature like add 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 add. And so we had a call or had a call with my boss, just kind of like looking at priorities for the end of the year, how we want to do stuff. Like, hey, I'm gonna be gone for two weeks, moving. 
And I suggested like, hey, there's a lot of stuff in Trello, the small feature requests, small enhancement requests, small bug fixes. We should just really like rail in on that stuff because it was always feeling this way at, at, at Octopus where we'd have a lot of projects, but like after Thanksgiving, no one did anything. And I don't mean like no one Octopus, I mean our clients, like they wouldn't email us back. They wouldn't call us. We like nothing would happen because we'd be waiting for, for, for feedback from people and they wouldn't give us any feedback. And so I was just thinking about that, like how the end of the year feels like time just stops moving or your projects just stop moving. And there were a couple of things that are larger features that we could start attacking, but I I thought it would be much more beneficial for us to really just, you know, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. There's only like five weeks left in the year. Uh, There's Thanksgiving and Black Friday happening. There's, you know, purchases are picking up. So like maybe we shouldn't do a big new feature right now. And maybe we should just focus on stability and performance for the next five weeks. And luckily she was like, that sounds awesome. Uh, make make it happen. It's like, okay. So that's what we've been doing um, is just fixing a lot of little things that have kind of been swept under the rug or put on the side or things that have been popping up lately. Cool, cool. Do you want me to like read off these cards? <laughs> no, well, let's talk about this uh, little bug that we worked out uh, in chat the other day with, with your Postgres queries because this, this was interesting, I thought. Yeah, yeah. So... I can't remember how many months ago. I don't even remember the name of the thing we were talking about. It wasn't post file. It was Hashura. Hashura. That's what it was. Hashura. Right. And yeah, yeah. So anyhow, like in evaluating Hashura, uh, part of Hashura's selling point is, oh, Postgres has these cool features like triggers and views and, and things like that. So you can kind of handle a bunch of automated things that you would normally do via code, but you can just have it done on a database level. And that's, that's, you know, that's cool. Uh, but a lot of the, the arguments against it were, were like, yeah, it's, it's not very, it, it's, it's pretty opaque though, because if you don't know it's there, if you haven't run through the migrations or someone hasn't said, Hey, this, there's a trigger here, then you wouldn't know about it. And it's just kind of black boxy magic, I guess. Well, I think it depends on the context of like what level you're developing at, right? Cause if you're, uh, if the language or framework you're using, uh, abstracts the database away so much, like it like it does for Ecto or Active Record or whatever, you're not really thinking about the database logic in, in that way, right? You're not thinking about the database doing anything more than foreign key constraints and, uh, you know, non-null constraints and those kind of things and indexing, right? Mm-hmm. Because generally that logic is is uh, application-specific, right? It's locked up in your, right. in your actual application code, not in the database. It's not to say you can't live there. You can make an entire application just using Postgres triggers probably. Sure. But... But yeah, when you're not, when you have like one in your whole application, yeah, you're going to forget that. <laughs> yeah. Well, also it's not something that I'm used to using. It's, I know it exists, but it's not something that I make a practice of using. And I think that's okay. So I guess to, 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 to describe this, this bug that I was seeing or this, this strangeness. So uh, we do flash sales or we allow people to host flash sales on Design Collective. And normally it's like, you know, 20, 30, 40 products that a store is having a sale on, like a group, a group of related products. And recently we had a store that wanted to have a flash sale, but they wanted their entire inventory in it. And uh, I was like, okay, that, that should be fine. There's no reason why that should be an issue. And so when a flash sale starts, it's kind of an automated process. So when you create this thing, you say, hey, I want this to run for X days. It should start uh, on this day at this time. These products are included. And when the sale starts, these product sale prices should be modified to be uh, different criteria. So you can do on a product-by-product basis. This product's 10%. This product's 20%. 
you can do a flat 20% off of everything in the sale. Um, so when the sale starts, it happens via a reoccurring task and it has to perform all these different actions. So it has to copy the sale prices over. It has to notify the, the store's contact. So if you're on the store's contact list, you'll get an email saying, hey, a new sale has started up to 20% off, whatever. And so it has to do all these things. And so a sale started or a sale tried to start rather, and there it didn't f- finish starting. And luckily things were all in a transaction. So it just rolled back into a non-started state. It wasn't like half started or there weren't like half the products were live and half the products weren't. It just kind of rolled back. And so the bug report came in, hey, the sale was supposed to start at this time and it didn't, what's up? And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll start digging into it. And so in looking at the logs, I noticed that there was a timeout. There was a, uh, I'm trying to picture what it was in my head. It was, uh, basically I traced it down to, oh, it was a transaction timeout. Like something took too long to happen. Right. And I think it's like a 15 second timeout by default or something. It's something long. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, I think Ecto in production by default, it's 15 second timeout window. Right. And so I was like, okay, it didn't necessarily say uh, Postgres timeout or anything. It just was like some sort of generic timeout. And so we also use Elasticsearch. And I know that since the product sales prices are changing, Elasticsearch also has to be updated. So I checked that first because that was the most obvious. Didn't seem like it was a problem. Um, so then I was like, okay, well, uh, let me let me you know make a giant sale on my computer and my dev machine and see what happens. So that's what I did. I made a sale. Had like several hundred products in it, which really you know fifteen. It shouldn't take more than fifteen seconds to update several hundred product rows. Yeah, because when you said that when you said this is taking a long time, like well, how many records is it? You're like, oh, it's a few hundred. I'm like, well, that should be yeah, yeah, basically instant, right? It's- so okay, so uh, specifically how this works is how the sale products are updated. So I nailed it. I like I I I, I, I was able to figure out that it was happening when the the sale product, like the product prices themselves, were being updated. So I zoomed in there, and how it works is we're using uh, recursion with Elixir and an Ecto Multi to build the operation for change. And so the the function that's called, it gets a list of products and then it just recurses over and builds a multi with update operations for the desired sale price. And I was like, okay, well, my first thought was like to Google for slow multi operations, which is hilarious now that I think about it because that that's, yeah, I was like, well, what, what would cause a multi? Like I just inherently started blaming the software. Like, oh, there's must be, maybe there's a bug or something that caused these inserts to be taking long. So what I did was I just logged, um, I, okay, let me step back. What I did was I, I removed it from a multi and just performed an update every time the function was called recursively. So that way I could see like a line by line change. And when the the SQL operation was logged into the console, each each updated operation was taking between 300 milliseconds to 500 milliseconds. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> like, that's very, very, very slow. Yeah. And you sent that to me. And we, yeah, it's just a very simple update operation. It's just literally just changing mm-hmm. one column on, uh, well, two columns, really, the price and the, the updated at timestamp, uh, but on, on each individual fields, which are indexed, you know, indexed by primary yep, key. Yep. It should be fast. Updating individual records should be fast. Uh, there's no weird indexes that had to be rebuilt that we saw, so that couldn't be it. Uh, it's not some weird uh, cascading thing, right? Right. So, which is it's it's just funny listening yeah. to us describe the process of getting to the, the fixing the problem because because okay, the first thing was like okay, well let's let's look at multi. Is there something weird going on? Okay, well let's look at indexes. Is there something weird with indexes going on? Uh, and that all checked out. The indexes were created properly. Um, everything everything was was fine. 
And then I don't remember. Oh yeah, so you just kind of like casually mentioned explain and analyze uh, the functions that PG has or Postgres has, uh, which I didn't really. I knew coming from Active Record that there was an Active Record explain you could tag on to a string of methods and it will spit you back out what happened in SQL. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I didn't know the opposite. I didn't know that that was just a thing with PG. <laughs> okay. So I, I thought that was an active record thing. Yeah. So if, if you're an active record, you can do some, I can't even remember the syntax now, but if you tag on a method that explain at the end, it'll just run explain on your query. And uh, yeah, so uh, I copied one line out of the log and uh, I pasted it into, I'm using Table Plus these days for my database stuff. You could use anything really. So what I did was I copied one line out and I pasted it and then I just ran it through the explain and analyze functions. And lo and behold, it was like update uh, products uh, one millisecond. And then it was, and then it said, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the trigger function. Uh, basically it was like, oh, and then I'm also uh, triggering this other function via a Postgres trigger. And I was like, oh, that takes 300 milliseconds. <laughs> Light bulb. So yeah, so for every practice being updated, it was updating a, a materialized view that we use. And that's where the extra time was coming from. But it was it was pretty opaque because I didn't remember that the, tr- the trigger was happening. Nothing in the SQL or nothing in the application logs were showing any sort of view being updated. It was just showing that this update operation was taking 300 milliseconds. Yeah. And so you don't normally use triggers. So how did that even get in there? Like what was, why was it being done that way in the first place? We're using triggers in a couple of places. And in this place, it was because we're using a materialized view to to build a view for the store pages. So for example, a store has many products, a product belongs to a room. And if you look at any sort of e-commerce page, You'll, you'll pretty much see that there's a breakdown of products and rooms, right? And so what we did was instead of having having those queries run or writing functions that piece this together, piece this information together, we just created a materialized view because that's kind of what it's for. So uh, the, the view, basically, you can run a query and it stores that query as uh, as a table in your database. So you can query that later, the, the view directly. And so we're using that with Ecto and it works pretty great. It makes it really easy for us to, you know, split out like store A has 100 products in accessories and and 50 products in furniture and no products in living room. So when we're showing that to the viewer, we make one query to that view and it's all ordered ordered by the number of products they have in a room. It's all... um all of the counter caches are there, all that stuff. We can actually see like the last added product to that room. So the the view updates as well there. Um, and, and so instead of doing the updates via code that way, the fastest way to implement that was just use a trigger. So whenever a product row changes, go ahead and update the, the materialized view for that store. Sure. I mean, and that all makes sense. But again, going back to the argument that you know, maybe this kind of logic shouldn't live in the database. We've kind of touched on this before in the past. Like, why not just do all of those things in in the application layer? And because the materialized view is basically using like a cache. Is that that right? Like for performance reasons, Uh, you don't have to recalculate the stuff on the fly every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's again, it's, it's it's a pretty much the right tool for the job, like you said, but 
uh, it is sort of more mental overhead in the sense that you have to know more about what's going on. I mean, you said, so you ask like, why would you, why would you use a view there if, if it could potentially cause trouble down the road? And it's because like you said, it is the right tool for the job. We could, we could add another technology or an additional layer to do a sort of a cache. Uh, but we, we don't have that, but we already have PG, which has views. Okay. And uh, we use a material view, materialized view because you can just run refresh on that. So the trigger function, whenever the product were changed, it triggered the refresh uh, store rooms view function, which just re- re- reruns that calculation and stores it. So it's pretty much all automated. Yep. And and so actually, technically, where the the bug was was it didn't it shouldn't be applied whenever a product changes because you could be changing a product that doesn't actually change the room it's assigned to, right? So you could change a sale price, for example, but that means that you probably don't need to update the view at that point because it has nothing to do with the room that it's assigned to. Right, because the product's room's table is a totally separate table. Yep, yep. Right, okay. Yeah, so we have products and rooms, and we have product rooms between them uh, for the join table. So the fix for this was actually just moving, uh, moving the trigger from happening on products table to products rooms. Nice. So... Easy, yeah. Easy. But yeah, there's a lot to be like there's a lot to be like thought like and talked about in yeah, trigger like just it does the thing. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily need to be tested because it's like Postgres tests how a trigger works for you and the trigger like making sure the trigger works and on all that stuff. And the view is the right tool for the job because it allows us to use tools that we already have and that do it well without adding anything new. And especially a caching layer, that was something that I want to hold off as long as I possibly can and add, adding that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole thing. Yeah. We could probably set up uh, a trigger like functionality in the code, but we were already writing migration to create a view and creating a trigger for that was literally like six lines in the same migration. So it was just there. It's just a tool that was available and it's easy to use. It's just funny that I think I didn't think about the trigger right away because triggers are a newer thing to me. I haven't known about them for Mm -hmm. that long, which is kind of funny to say, but that's why the first thing in my mind wasn't, oh, there's a trigger here. It was, oh, this is interesting. Why are these slow? Oh, uh, SQL, like using explain analyze is telling me exactly why they're slow, but I don't, I don't know. That was funny. That was like, I think when I was talking to you about it, you like brought up the Hisura discussion that we had had and you were basically just mentioning like imagining, imagine building your entire application out of these things. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not that triggers are complicated. It's it, again, it's not that triggers are complicated or difficult to reason about. It's just that you have to know they're there. They're not part of your software stack. So if you're in the software stack all day long, you're not thinking about a trigger happening. Right. And I mean, you can make the argument that it, you should know about it, right? Cause there are, there is kind of a minimum level of database knowledge you need to be able to mm-hmm. use Ecto, right? You need to understand tables, data types, indices, you know, how, how SQL works, right? Sometimes you need to dig into SQL and do weird things that aren't, you know, easy. Uh, there, there, there's a, you know, kind of a, there's a barred entry there. And uh, maybe, you know, if your application needs it, uh, views and materials, views and triggers, it's just another thing to pile on there. It's interesting too, because I, when I say like the trigger and stuff was like, obviously the trigger itself is a Postgres function. So that lives in Postgres. It doesn't live in the software. And turns out that views just work great with Ecto as well. And so technically the the storeroom stuff is in the software <laughs> because we're using Ecto to be able to access that information. Sure. It's just a as far as Ecto is concerned, it doesn't 
care that it's a table or or view, right? You just exactly, it. yeah. So, like you said, there is something to be said about having a minimum of like you kind of have to know about this this thing. Like you have to know this much about your app, right? You have to know what's going on. And I think really me forgetting about the trigger is more of a symptom of the app is getting bigger and bigger and there's only two of us working on it. So it's becoming more and more difficult for me to kind of have a complete picture of everything in my head and remember everything that's happening all of the time. And especially when Paul and I are working on different things, someone might report a bug and if Paul worked on it, I'll have to be like, and if he's not around, I have to be like, oh, let me, you know, I'll get back to you. Let me investigate. And me investigating isn't like poking at the bug. It's like, how does this work in the first place? <laughs> That's the first part of it. You have to reverse engineer it. Exactly. And you didn't implement that trigger, right? Not to throw Paul under the bus, but he, he was the one who built that feature, right? Yeah. So it's possible that it's not like you built it and then forgot. Sure. <laughs> you just probably never even had to interact with it before. Even funnier is that Paul built it and showed it to me. He was like, what do you think? And I was like, I think that's great. It's succinct. It's short. It's not adding any new dependencies. It It's just go- it's going to just work how we want it to. But neither of us thought, oh, every time you change something other than the room, this will also update. Right. So I think that's a symptom of a few things. It's a symptom of feeling rushed a lot. That's something I've been dealing with a lot with this week. It's just fixing small bugs where I was hurrying through something and I caused a bug because I was in a hurry. If I would have spent more time reviewing or if I would have said, okay, this thing is done now. Let me walk away and come back in an hour and look at it again. Instead of it's done, let's ship it now, right? That's something that I've been trying to do a lot is I think a couple of years, like a year ago, I mentioned, I used to have a post-it note. I need to put it back on my monitor that says, slow down, like don't be in a hurry. Because that's where, if I'm looking at the bugs that happen, 90, 80, 90% of them are are direct results of being in a hurry or not having enough time to finish something or like under pitching a deadline or something like that. So you don't, you finish the thing, but you don't spend as much time reviewing the thing as working on the thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I think like in analyzing that, I think that what Paul did was right. I okayed it. I still think it's the the proper solution. It's just the symptom is like, or the, the problem came from me not remembering how that stuff worked. I mean, listen, I built, I'm not proud of this, but I built Rails applications for years, years uh, without creating a single like index. Oof. Like I didn't understand what indexes were or how they worked. And uh, yeah, when my queries started to get real, real slow, uh, I learned I learned pretty quickly how uh, important that, that was. Sure. And how much of an improvement that made. It felt like uh, like you were finding all this performance for free. It was awesome. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've been trying to think about like how do I how do I remember this stuff? I don't know. Like I've never worked for a big company, so I, I have to assume that things like this happen as well. Because even if you have more team members, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to have a, you know, a direct responsibility over everything. I, I don't know how that would even be possible, especially looking at documentation for some larger apps that, you know, that we use. I'm like, dear God, who could, who could ever know all this stuff? You'd have to search the docs. But if anything, it's not, it wasn't like a realization like, oh, uh, we shouldn't use triggers because this could happen. Because if I'm thinking back about inheriting the Rails code, there were um, active record callbacks being used that I think in one case, it was just like an infinite thing. I was like, my God, why is the server crashing? And then I was like, oh, there's a callback that's calling another thing that's part of a callback and it's just going around in circles. You know what I mean? Right. Which is part of the software stack. It can be tested. It's just I didn't, 
I hadn't read through the code that much and I didn't realize like, oh, this was happening, you know? Yeah. And I think at a larger company, actually the problem is can be easier because you're in smaller teams, at least from my experience, you're in smaller teams that are more focused on individual pieces of the application. And so your your domain knowledge is actually starts off pretty limited, especially when you're just yeah. starting because it is so big and you have to kind of know your uh, little corner of the application. And as you start interfacing with other pieces, you you reach out to those people and learn about learn about those other pieces and your knowledge kind of grows from there. But you kind of have to you do start just start off just being thrown into it. Yeah. And having to having to figure it out. It's it's not easy. So, I mean, I've thought about I thought kind of out loud to the team about having team like team as as far as developer goes having team leaders but it's just kind of funny it it feels silly to think about this because we only have two programmers <laughs> but think about it in this way but i've i've thought out loud uh to my boss about like what if we had team like teams like we had the e-commerce team and we had cuz we are we have like two very different functions as design collective the first one is e-commerce um that's you know that's a big part of it we're an e-commerce platform but the second one is tooling for the stores so we offer a number of tools that help them market and, and sell their products. So I thought about like, what if we had like a, a e-commerce team lead, which would be me, and we had like a tooling team lead, which is Paul. But again, there's only two of us and there's so much work to be done that I don't know that like <laughs> splitting it up like that would even work or it would make sense, you know? There's no I in team, Sean. But then, then, then that would be like the end of the road in terms of like knowing how the e-commerce platform functions and works and Paul would be the end of the road in terms of knowing how every, like the different tools that we build for the stores, like how those function and work. But yeah, but like you said, you're, you're so small. It's, it's, it's almost silly to make those draw those distinctions so early. It it is. It's interesting because I think about that when things like this happen, we're like, Oh, I forgot. That's how that worked. I can, it can go both ways, but I don't like at this point, I don't think like it would be the right thing to do to split that, split that up. So any, anyway, yeah, I think it's probably a little premature, premature for sure. But times are tough out here trying to thank goodness. Uh, we've been writing documentation in Elixir. So <laughs> lots and lots of documentation. Maybe we should document those triggers somewhere. Probably should actually. Uh, in fact, I'm adding a to do to write docs for this hashtag yeah. to do, but, um, I know it's not a hashtag. Yeah. Good. Some good thoughts there. Some good thoughts there. Yeah. I, I like, I like how you, how you kind of mentioned, cause that was my first thing when I was thinking about this bug I was like, Oh, it's the view. Why, why did we do it this way in the first place? And then you mentioned it's probably the right tool for that. Uh, I, it makes me feel a little better about it, but I don't know, but that's been my week. It's been a rough week. There's been lots of things like that going on. So I don't know. So how about that sandwich? Yeah, I'm actually thinking about it right now. I know you are. It's like 20, 20, no, it's not that close. It's maybe 200 yards, 200 yards away from me right now. <laughs> it's calling your name. Uh, so what I would like to know is what our dear listeners prefer in a sandwich. That's a, that's a good question. Let me know what kind of sandwich everyone likes. Is it pastrami? Is it like a Black Forest ham sandwich? Could it be turkey? Could it be some sort of peppered turkey? I've had that before. That's pretty good pre-seasoned turkey i'm pretty boring on my sandwich front well well, when i'm when i'm uh you know cooking for myself it's usually just a ham on uh like a oat nut bread and uh either mayo i've got some nice chipotle mayo which is pretty pretty good spice it up a little bit kick it up a notch Mm. and uh maybe a little bit of lettuce for a little crunchy Crunchy water. water a good hot sauce is underrated i think for a sandwich yeah yeah and like i got into i was into mustard for a while 
Uh, it's never really a mustard guy, but I got into it, and uh, now I'm just just back to plain old mayo. So if you want to if you want to apply some hot sauce, if you want to up your sandwich game, this is this is a life tip from from me right now, from me to you and everybody else. All right, hit me. If you want to up your sandwich game and you're serious about this. Apply some hot sauce, but not any kind of hot sauce. You don't want like a really vinegary hot sauce on a sandwich. You want to look for maybe like a little bit of a sweeter hot sauce. Uh, so a good example of this would be mango habanero. Ch- uh, Cholula just released uh, a, a new flavor. They call it... Um, oh, man. I can't remember what they call it. It's basically mango habanero. I don't know about you, but we get like the largest Cholula sizes we can find because we go through that quickly the garlic one is, is really good too but for a sandwich you want more of a sweeter yeah. less vinegary hot sauce and uh yeah because i've tried lots of hot sauces you can get the mango habanero cholula you know that you know why cholula tastes so good right you know their secret i don't know their secret it's the wooden cap it just makes it taste better but it's got plastic on the inside of it <laughs> no no it's science it's a fact can't dispute it. Another, I guess, like I just watch hot ones on YouTube and then look for the hot sauces they have there and order those. But yes, if you do, if you do, I'm going back to my life tip voice. If you want to up your sandwich game, go get some sweet hot sauce, some fruity hot sauce. You'll, you'll thank me. You heard it here first. Well, you can thank Sean on Twitter <laughs> at Sean Washbot. Uh, you can talk to us at DNC Show on Twitter, and uh, if you want to tell me why, uh, why I should feel bad for putting. For having just plain ham and mayo at Shrockwell on Twitter. Uh, show notes are available at dnc.show. You can go there, and I'm putting all of the hot sauces in the in the that we that I described in the show notes, so you'll be able to find direct links to them there. You can also chat with us over at spectrum.chat, where we'll have the show notes and uh, real time discussion about the show, and also uh, other other podcasts uh, on the network and other development and design related topics i just looked up that chulula sauce and it's called sweet heat so uh sweet they don't say mango they say sweet and uh yeah if you're looking for a new job you can head over to spec.fm slash jobs and see what what's going on over there there's usually two new postings every few weeks so like looking at it today we got some more data dog jobs we got some more vision jobs and uh, you should definitely go check those two companies out because they're both good companies and again, thanks to Spec for having us and tolerating our our banter in food talk and for fixing the podcast and making it not sound broken <laughs> like a busted van. And if you're if you're into the developer and the design podcast scene, you should definitely check out our other shows like Fragmented and Design Details and Swift Unwrapped. And as always, this episode does not compete was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Well, happy sandwich. Mm, about these sandwiches. Let's just keep going. We'll we'll just tack on another 40 minutes. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you later. See ya. Thanks again to Manifold for being a sponsor of Does Not Compute. You can head on over to manifold.co slash DNC for a $10 credit towards any service on the Manifold Marketplace. You know, my brother used to get a sandwich at Subway where it was just like salami and mayo on white bread.